Hey Yak, welcome back to The Quarantine, episode 60. This feels old, y'all. We've almost hit the stage where the quarantine can start accepting payments from Medicare and get Social Security checks. Episode 60. We're going to continue our lesson on love. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to cover two concepts today, namely the concept of not thinking evil and also truth. So let's look at those today. 1 Corinthians 13, as always, we're going to read the whole thing. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Today we're going to focus on the section of this idea of thinking no evil. Now, if you're in your ESV, your elect standard version, you have the phrase or resentful. So be irritable or resentful. I like how the NS, NASB puts it. This is what it says. Love, it does not seek its own. It is not provoked. And here it is. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. I think it's the NIV that says, thinks no evil. But what does that mean, right? Are we talking about, you know, the monkeys uh, that, you know, they see no evil, they hear no evil, they speak no evil, those funny statues. Um, what, they're, what, what Paul is speaking of here is to grant others a judgment of charity. When wrongs are committed against us, we are quick to assign motive. And I've seen this over and over again, where we quickly assign a motive to someone either because they have a history of past actions that resemble it, and sometimes that can be wise, or other people have committed similar crimes against you so you assign their motive, so the other people's crimes, to a new person. It's blame shifting, right, in a way. And this is dangerous for a couple reasons. One, it denies in the first instance where someone has done you wrong in the past and um, they have even confessed, let's say, 
to a wrong motive, and let's say they do it again, it denies the chance for sanctification to have taken place. It denies the chance for sanctification to have taken place. To assume motive is dangerous. Because at best, it already determines judgment, and that's the best. And at worst, it breaks the commandment to not lie because we falsely place a motive on someone else. And in that, we actually sin. So we have to be quick and build our hearts in such a way to assign charity to when sins are committed against us. And the best way to know for that to sure is to be mature enough to approach someone when sins are committed against us and to have serious discussions about it. To voice your displeasure, to voice your hurt. And if there was sin committed, to work towards reconciliation. What I also notice in this, especially in my own life, is that I am quick to not assign charity to someone else, but I am very quick to assign charity to when I commit a sin. To make the excuse that, well, I have definitely have good motives in this. I didn't mean the um, worst that can happen. And that can be dangerous as well uh, for, I think, very obvious reasons um, because we end up being hypocrites. So love is not quick to think evil of others, but demonstrates forbearing, a forbearing spirit is the way that R.C. puts it. The next one is, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now we could really, I think, speak to past or cultural lies and untruths that are celebrated. We're going to see that in Romans 1 here in a second if you want to jump there. But I also want to tie it to what we just talked about with assigning poor motive. And again here, I think Paul is linking them along with moving on to the next thing. It's a both and in the sense that when we assign motive, we regularly assign false motive. Because we think we're the ultimate judge. And ironically, it is only from the um, position of the victim that we feel like our judgment is vindicated by the Lord instead of giving our judgment to the Lord for him to deal out. So I don't want you to miss that link here. But it goes further, right? We live in a world that rejoices in untruth. See, God is not just a God of love, but he is the God of truth. Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we should rejoice in truth. But sin involves a love for pleasure and evil. And sadly, we seek our joy in sin. Turn to Romans 1 with me. We're going to be, be in verses 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, when you read that list, don't be quick to assign those titles to other people. Look at that list and see where you lie. We shouldn't read the Bible with the hope that we catch others in sin, but we should read the Bible with the hope that God reveals our sin and we can be sanctified and made more into his image. But one thing we can learn from here, or one of the many things, is that not only does misery love company, but sin loves company. If you look at the last verse, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We love when we sin to bring others in it. Because it kind of makes our consciences um, weaker. Because when you sin alone, there's this sense of guilt and shame. But when you sin with others, we can, we can spread the blame around, right? And so we want to see here that God is a God of truth and love. They're inseparable. And when we sin against God, we actually follow the father of lies, who is the devil. You see, the devil, he trades an untruth and does everything he can to distort and twist or conceal the truth. And when we are untruthful, we do the same things. We see this actually a few verses before in verses 18 through 25 of Romans 1. This is what it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the what? Suppress love? Well, sure, I'm sure you can make that argument. Uh, Suppress a people group? Maybe, yeah, maybe that's included. Suppress their um, wills? No, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I have a friend from seminary named Bill. He was street preaching last week during the riots um, and during the protests um, on the East Coast. And he got into a conversation with a young man who said, you know, what the police are doing is evil, right? The looting is evil. The abuse is evil. And Bill did very good. He said, yeah, I agree with you. Where do you ground that? Where do you get the idea of evil? And he didn't have an answer for it. He had no grounding for the reason he was marching. He was just angry. And Bill stressed, what, what is it in you that screams that there should be justice and righteousness? What 
about the human condition makes us different than Darwinism that preaches survival of the fittest. The strong eat and the weak perish. And he didn't have an answer. Even though Bill was preaching and trying to make clear to him that you are in the, made in the image of God and therefore you reflect him in your heart. But ironically, a nine-year-old kid came up very soon afterwards and asked for the mic for Bill and preached the gospel to everyone in attendance, reminding us that we're image bearers, reminding us that we need to rest in the truth, namely that justice is real and that Christ is on the throne. A nine-year-old can get it because it's very clear based on how we respond as human beings to evil. But an 18-year-old who is living a lie can miss the trees in the midst of the forest, or or the forest in in the midst of the trees, right? And so don't miss it. We need to be grounded in truth, and truth is found in the Word of God, and truth is found in the Scripture that we have read today, and hopefully you can dwell on it, rest in it. It's good truth. Peace.